we're honored that you're here this morning. We're going through a New Testament survey that we've been working on for quite a while. This morning, we're still in 1 John. And so I hope that you've got your Bibles with you. And if so, you can join us. Whoa, survey just went down and we need 1 John to come up. There we go. Thank you. Um, so I want to talk to you for a moment. How many of y'all had the blessing of growing up in Lubbock, Texas? Okay. Okay. If you wish you had, keep your hands down. Ah, yeah, I knew it. Just about everybody. Okay. Well, for those of us who did, if you went to Coronado High School and you were, were in uh, a certain English class, then you had the opportunity to read Dandelion Wine under Sharon Kingston. Now, Miss Kingston may have been, uh, she definitely was one of the three most formative teachers in my life. She was an amazing woman. I hope she has indicated she'll be in our Sunday school class to come visit in September when she comes in for a library lecture. She still teaches English uh, in, in Lubbock. And she was, um, I don't want to say she was um, old because she wasn't old, but to a kid in school, she was teacher age, okay? Uh, when I was in school... Um, and so it's, it's just kind of cool that she still teaches at this point in her life. She was our junior English teacher. Dandelion Wine was one of the books we read. It was by Ray Bradbury. And we had to write these papers. She was in charge of our of making sure we learned how to write a junior research English theme type paper. And the, 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 I remember the, the process, it was very long, very deliberate. We had to take three by five cards and do certain things. We had to come up with a thesis sentence and turn it in. We had to do an outline. We had to do drafts. She'd edit the drafts. It was, it was very elaborate. But one of the things that, that we learned under her through both research papers, but also through reading good works of literature is to look for themes and metaphors that are recurrent within that literature. So we read Dandelion Wine, great book. We ran, read The Scarlet Letter. I, I can't really comment on whether it was a great book or not because I pretty much just stuck with the cliff notes. And uh, um, don't tell her. She would probably change my grade back if she knew it. Um, but... I had trouble with that book. It just seemed real boring. But Dandelion Wine was a phenomenal read. And I loved the way we would look for themes. And it's really that time in my life where I started realizing people who write aren't simply telling a narrative. That there are ideas and metaphors and themes that enrich the writing so that you're reading a work of literature and not just dune buggy baby where you're trying to follow the plot line or something. You with me? And so if you ever hit that point where you realize good works of literature aren't simply the words on the page relating a plot or even developing a character, but there are themes and motifs and metaphors and allegories and images that are woven into the fabric that as you read and you digest those, you come to a greater appreciation for what's being written. It's no different reading a great work like 1 John. 1 John is a letter, but it's a letter that's not simply written to give instruction. 
it's a letter with some recurrent themes and ideas that continue to bubble and surface throughout the letter. It's very much written with some metaphors and some ideas that as we chew on them, as we look at them, we began to discover some nuanced ideas and meanings that, that, that allow us to more fully appreciate what John is writing for us. So I'd like to deal with 1 John this week by looking at the themes in 1 John. There are a lot. I do not list them all here. We certainly don't have time to cover them all. But in 1 John is a theme of sin. And you can go through 1 John on your own and circle every time you see sin. Hamartion in the Greek. And circle it every time you see it. And see what that, then go back and read those verses. See what he's doing in that theme. There's a theme of light. And he uses the phrase light, phos in the Greek. We get photo from it. P-H-O-S in the Greek. And so there's this theme of light that he's got. He's got a theme of truth. Go through and circle every time he uses the word truth. And you'll see how he uses it over and over again. The theme of love. And that comes about in a variety of ways. You can't always find his usage in the English translation. Because sometimes those words carry a little different translation depending on the version you use. He's got a family theme in the process of the writing. He's got a theme of darkness, which is the counterpoint to light. He's got a theme of fear. You can read and you can take fear and look at that. A theme of fellowship, commonness, koinonio. It's um, it's this... Uh, uh, the idea of, of a grouping around a common purpose or reason in the Greek. And so all of these are themes, there are more, but they're worth reading First John especially because unlike some of the other books that you may read, First John really does weave these themes in and out. It drove some of the people in this class crazy when they tried to memorize First John because the words would keep being used over and over in different places with a nuanced change. And it's kind of like, he just said that sort of. Why did he say it again? And, and why did we have to memorize it twice? And all of this kind of stuff, Janet Seaford. And so you look at at that, and and uh, this class is in part a tribute to Janet Seifert, because while we're focusing on themes and metaphors, for at least a year she's been asking me, what's the deal with that light stuff and darkness? Please comment on it. There's got to be something to it. It's used too much. So I kept saying, yes, I will, I will, I will. And now we are. So I want to look at the themes of light, darkness, and the family theme. In 1 John, those are metaphors that are used. And I want you to take your time to go look at the others that you may find. And you can do that on your own. But light, darkness, and family are the metaphors we're looking at. Light and darkness is a weird deal. We've got a 21st century perspective on light and darkness that is very different than the perspective before the advent of electricity. We dispel darkness real easily. It's flip a switch. 
we don't really have that much darkness. Because even in darkness, we generally will have some lights. Even a dark city night, generally there are street lights, the cars driving by have headlights, the houses have porch lights. We live in a well-lit era of history. But real darkness has a power. And in the ancient world, there was a power of real darkness such that a light that would shine through would in some ways even make the darkness more interesting, more pronounced. And we lose track of that. So I really want you, before we get into this too deeply, I want you to try and get a first century mentality of darkness and light. I want you to consider what it's like when there is absolute darkness. Maybe there's a moon that's lit up the outside sky, but even inside a building, you're not going to have much light from that moon. It might shine through a window. You can light a lamp if you've got sufficient oil. But it's not surprising that darkness took on a, a, a metaphorical meaning for evil and sin. Because the things that you could do in the darkness were things that in the light of day you might not so readily do. People might see you do them in the light of day. But in the concealing darkness, there's a, a scaring liberty that is there. I know many... People who travel. I travel a lot for a living. I travel a whole lot. But as a result, I run in circles of people who travel a lot. And it's fascinating because travel itself, for some, seems to be a world of darkness in the sense that they're out of the light of their environment where they operate. And for some people, that darkness is a chance to do deeds and to live in ways that they would never live in the lightness of their community and home. That's also a wonderful chance for people to shine a bright light in the darkness and show the difference that God can make. But we live in a world where this idea of darkness is one that's not hard for us to grasp if we think about it. But we need to think about it. We need to think about what it is for there to be a concealing versus a light that shines into the concealing and dispels the darkness. So that's what I want you in your brain. So think about it in your brain. I've got a picture up here. It's not something John came up with on his own. It's not something the Holy Spirit gave to simply John. The idea of the light being good and of darkness being evil is an idea that's as old as Scripture itself. Look, for example, at Job 30, verse 26. Um, if we flip over to Job... <laughs> 
one of Tim's favorite books, Job 30, verse 26. When I hoped for good, evil came. When I waited for light, darkness came. Now, if you've been in here for our Old Testament survey or for a number of different courses, you know I've talked to you a lot about Hebrew poetry. Hebrew poetry was not poetry because it rhymed. The hallmark of Hebrew poetry is something called parallelism. Parallelism. And that may not be how you spell it. Um, if it's not, sorry. It's how I spell it. <laughs> Parallelism. What Hebrew poetry would do is it would set up phrases. And I know how to spell phrases. It would set up phrases, let's say, phrase A, B, C, and D. And it would set them up in a way where you would have a parallel structure. So you'd have A and B, and then you might have C and D, like that. So that A is parallel, let's do that as for parallel to C, and B is parallel to D. And if that's the structure, then you read A and C together. And C gives you more insight into A. You with me? Now, they would do it differently. Sometimes they would go A, B, D, C, and you can understand that. Sometimes it, there are lots of different ways they would do the poetry. But here in this passage, we have A, I hoped for good. That's A. Evil came, B. I waited for light, C. Darkness came. D, A goes to C, B goes to D. I hoped for good, I waited for light, but evil came, darkness came. So this is a passage where very clearly Job is equating good with light, evil with darkness. And so, uh, we've got it. It's not something new to John. It's something that was there in the Old Testament a good bit. If you look at Psalm 90, verse 8, you'll see in Psalm 90, verse 8, God being equated with light and evil or sin being equated with darkness. Same type deal, Psalm 90, verse 8. And, by the way, it's poetry as well. Now that you know your A.B.'s, C's, D's, or um, I guess we should do a, a Aleph, Beit, Gimel, Dalits if we were going to do them in Hebrew. Um, verse 8, you've set out our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. And so you can see the A, the B, the C, and the D. 
our iniquities are our secret sins. They're on one side of the poem. Before God, before the light of his presence is the other side. So we see God as the light of his presence. We see the secret sin as the opposite of that. So it would be darkness. And those are the musings from this psalm. We can look at other passages. Scripture in Psalm 119.105. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light to my path. And so the word of God is light. It dispels the darkness. It reveals the truth. It shows what reality is. We can look at... uh, uh, the story of Gideon and and the light and and where's Ron? Ron, our Gideon, ah, stand up so everybody knows you and can talk to you about the Gideons. They put Bibles in how many countries? Two hundred. How many Bibles so far? Eighty-eight million a year. When we give money to the Gideons, how much of it goes to Bibles? One hundred percent. When people go out and put those Bibles, who's paying the people? Nobody. They do it on their own dollar. And if you look at a Gideon Bible, you'll see the light and the torch. Because not only the Gideon story, but they're taking the light of the world in the sense of God's word. A lamp to our feet and a light to our paths. If you look at Ecclesiastes 2.13, you'll see another poetic expression. Eh, we got a minute. Let's, I'm going to get, I don't want to get too far into this. Um, but look at Ecclesiastes 2.13 while we're doing this, because it's another one. Gives us. So here the writer says, the preacher, I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do uh, who comes after the king? What's already been done? Then I saw there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. And you read that in Hebrew, and it's a poetic structure in Hebrew. There's more gain in wisdom, A, than folly, B, more gain in light, C, than darkness, D. So there's more gain in wisdom, which is light, than there is in foolishness, which is darkness. The same type of thing. So if we're looking, there are tons of passages. One of my favorites is Numbers 625. That's the Levitical blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. We've got the Lewises right here. We get them to stand up and sing this for us. And any rest of us Campbellites could sing it with them and just do, this was a major song growing up. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord lift his countenance upon you. The shining of God's face. May God shine upon you. This same image is used in the Psalms over and over and over. Psalm 4, 6 is an example. May the face of God shine upon you as a means of blessing and calling forth the blessings of God. So this idea of, of, of light being good, light being God, it's one with great history. 
Not just in the Old Testament. In Matthew 4.15, Matthew's quoting Isaiah. That Jesus goes into Galilee because he says that a light will shine in the darkness. 2 Corinthians 4.6. Look, 1 Timothy 6.16. Look at the blessing, the benediction that uh, uh, Paul gives in 1 Timothy. This is a beautiful benediction, but it tells you how this works. It starts out in verse 15. Um, God is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light. We're not the first people to realize you cannot look at the sun without going blind. God's light makes the sun look like a 20-watt bulb. God's light is totally unapproachable. Moses can't see God's face. But even being in the presence of God causes Moses' face to shine reflectively like the moon does that shines from the sun. Satan, Paul says in 2 Corinthians, disguises himself as an angel of light. But he's not light. He's darkness. And so these are images that are used throughout history, throughout biblical history. They give us passages. Paul in Ephesians says to put on the whole armor of God because the battle we're waging is one against the powers of darkness. Colossians 1.13 again. So now, 1 John 1, 5 through 7. Let's look at what John has to say. 1 John 1, 5 through 7 is the first of these passages. And I'm using a Bible that I've written in a whole bunch. And that makes it a little tougher for us to see the new stuff. But that just means we've covered some of this in class before. So, because that's a class Bible given to the class by Richard. But I'm going to put a new text up here so we can walk clean. This is the message. We have heard from him. Him here is God. This is the message we've heard from him and proclaimed to you. Colon, in my mind. God is light. In him is no darkness at all. Now, I like oftentimes to make sure that we're all working with a good perspective, a good basic theology of God. And so I find it really useful to have this picture in my brain, and I hope that you can get it in yours or you have it in yours. Biblically speaking, God is a real entity. He's not a computer program. He's not just a power. He's not a force. God is real. He's a real being. He's not a human. He's not even a supersized human. He is 
an entity unto himself. There are none like our God. He is one entity, even as he has fellowship within that entity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in three personages. But God is a real entity that exists. He exists outside of our space and time. He exists outside of the universe, even as he exists within it. He's not tied to it. But he moves within it. God is called different things in Scripture. God is called good. Now, if there is God, and God is a definite being, by definition, there's something outside of God. There's something that is not God. We can call it ungod. There is ungod outside of God. God is good. If you don't have the goodness of God, we've got another word we use for that, which is ungod, and we call that evil. There's an image here that God is light. And the image here is that that which is not God. If you remove light, what do you have? Darkness. God is called truth. In him is no lie. If you distort the truth, what do you have? And the, the, for ages, philosophers have debated, where did evil come from? Did God make evil? No. God is good. Evil's the absence or distortion of God. It's not created. It is. God is truth. That doesn't make a lie a created thing. A lie is a distortion of truth. God is a selfless love. What makes ungod? A selfish love. Not hate. Because we hate evil. Paul says in Romans, let your love be genuine, hate what is evil. Genuine love has, has can, can hate evil. I mean, this is bad stuff. This, God is life. What is ungod? Now, where do we as sinners live? In the ungod land. And where were we created to be? In fellowship with God. But we have lost that fellowship because we've chosen to live in a world of sin. As opposed to a world of righteousness. And so once we've done that, we have divorced ourselves from God. And God's chore was as a saving, loving, merciful God is, by the way, he's also just, which means consistent. He doesn't change. God can't just change and become sinful so we can walk with him as sinners. God will not change. He cannot change. So how does a just God who cannot change give sin the death it deserves and yet ransom us from that power of sin? The answer is, through becoming human and paying that price for us, that's the power of the cross. 
Now, here's what John's writing then. With that image in your brain, look at how it helps us make sense of what John has to say. God is light. In him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him, while we walk, and this in the, in the Greek is the present tense. And tense, verb tenses in the Greek are just a, a whole different animal than ours. But think about it this way. What, what, what John is saying is, if we say we have fellowship with him right now, this is something we have in this moment, while in this moment we are walking in darkness, we are at this moment lying. We're not practicing at this moment the truth. We cannot say, if we are walking in darkness, that we are in common with God. Fellowship means common, a common bond. We can't say walking in darkness that we have a common bond with God. John's writing to a people, a good portion of whom likely have have been taught by some, wrongly taught, that the body is bad. The spirit is good. And so, hey, let your body sin. That doesn't really matter. As long as your heart is right, you're one with God. And John's saying, this is not true. If we are saying right now, hey, I'm going to sin. I'm going to walk in sin. Right now, I'm going to walk in sin, but that's okay. Right now, I'm still having fellowship with God because my heart is right. John's saying, that's a lie. And you're not practicing the truth. If we walk in the light, in the goodness of God, in righteousness, as God is in the light, then we do have fellowship with one another. And the blood of his son cleanses us from all our sin. Now, he says, I'm not saying we don't have sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. We certainly have sin, but we confess. And it's important that we walk in the light. That if, if we believe this stuff, if we believe this and we don't just give lip service to it, then we need to be walking in the light as he is in the light. This is what's best for us. This is what we've been called for. This is where there's life. This is where there's a future. In the light. In the Lord. Where his word shines. Where darkness is dispelled. Where we have life and we have it abundantly, to use the words of Jesus. So we've got that passage in John. The second one that we'll turn to in John, where John uses this theme again, is in chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. Chapter 2, verses 8 through 11, John says, um, at the same time, I'm giving you a new commandment. I'm writing to you a new commandment, even though it's not new. But it's true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away. And the true light is already 
shining. Whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother and abides in the light. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light. In him, there's no cause for stumbling, which you do quite readily in the darkness. Whoever hates his brothers in the darkness and walks in the darkness and doesn't know where he's going. The darkness has blinded his eyes. We need the light to be able to see. If we claim that we are in the light, even though we hate our brother, go back to the picture. If you hate your brother and claim to be in the light, you're not. You've deceived yourself. If you love your brother with a selfless love, then you're walking in the light and you have all the benefits of the light and the light is there. It's a marvelous image that he talks about. And it, I'm sure with you, as it has with me, brings to mind the magnificent words of maybe the best poet of the 20th century. Bob Dylan. Gives a little more volume. You want to hear it, the melodious voice. Now this spiritual warfare, flesh and blood breaking down. You either got faith or you got unbelief. And there ain't no neutral ground. The enemy is subtle. How be it we're deceived when the truth's in our hearts and we still don't believe. Shine your light. Everybody sing. No. Shine your light on me. I love the Bob, man. Bob says it. It's not scriptural if Bob says it, but it's pretty close. I mean, it's like almost there. Um, Bob, C.S. Lewis, those guys really had a grasp of the world. So this idea of light is one that should mean a lot to us. And I wish I had it in my brain every time I'm in the light to appreciate the fact that that is what the Lord is. And that's what we're called to be. And every time that we're sinning and every time that we're involved in the deeds of darkness, we're not fellowshipping with the Lord at that moment. I'm not saying... Oh, you're going to hell. This is not a work salvation. This is a question of where you are. You want to walk in the blessings of the Lord in this life. You don't want to walk in the shadows. And in the control of the evil one.
and in his realm. I have 10 minutes left. I want to I want to throw one more thing out there. Now, nah, let's keep going. Okay. Miss Carolyn said A lot of times we think of atonement. Jesus atoning for our sins. Jesus paying the price for our sins. A lot of times we think of it as a Jewish festival that is Yom Kippur. Yom is the Jewish word for day. Kippur is atonement. The Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, was the day where once a year the priest would bring two goats and one goat would be slaughtered for the sins of the people and the priest and the blood would be sprinkled on the people and on the altar and on the priest. And the priest, once a year, sprinkled clean by the blood of the goat, could go in to the Holy of Holies. The other goat, the scapegoat, that's where the expression comes from. The priest would lay his hands on the goat to signify transferring the sins of the people to that goat. And the goat would be driven out from the city or from the the, the camp because the sins had to be sent away from God. And so the scapegoat would carry those sins and go away. Now, we see Yom Kippur finding fulfillment in Jesus. Christians no longer sacrifice goats. The blood of the goat was really doing nothing about our chart problem that we had. The blood of a goat's not really going to move us from, from, from ungod, evil, darkness, lies, selfish death, sin, into good, light, truth, selfless life. It's going to take a human death to pay the price for human sins. You can find the best goat in the world. He's not good enough to pay the price for a human sin. So, so the, 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 the goat was a symbol of this, and we've got that Jewish festival. But there was another Jewish festival that's fulfilled in Jesus. Actually, several others, but one worth mentioning. And that is the festival of Pesach, which is Hebrew for Passover. Because it was during that festival of Pesach that the Jews celebrated the fact that God released them and brought them out of the slavery of Pharaoh, the ruler of Egypt. Brought them into the promised land. And Jesus not only atones for our sins, Yom Kippur, bears our sins on our behalf, but at the cross... And in the tomb, Jesus conquered the warring powers of darkness. We commit sins, lowercase s, but there is a power of sin, capital S, that Paul writes about. Sin has a grip on us. Sin's not just something we do. It's a power that possesses us. There are powers and principalities of darkness. And Jesus conquered those on the cross and in the tomb. And so we not only have atonement, but we have Passover redemption from slavery to sin. We have victory over that power. We're no longer under the control of the prince of darkness. And that's why we should live accordingly. Now, what that leaves me with a couple of minutes for, you can read it in your lesson, is family.
It's really interesting in, in Hebrew thought and in early Christian thought. Read the book of Acts. The brotherhood of the earliest church was based on the fact that they were all blood related through Abraham. Because the earliest church was Jewish. And you find the expression about, even there's a passage in Acts where Paul talks about brothers, sons of Abraham, and those who fear God, who were the Gentiles in his audience. But quickly the church recognized, as Paul writes in Galatians, that in Jesus we are adopted as sons into the household of God. That's not, by the way, a sexist comment. He says adopted as sons, even you daughters, because it's the opposite of a sexist comment. Only sons had those inheritance rights under Roman law. And women get the inheritance rights just as much as men do. No second class citizen. Paul says neither male nor female, slave nor free, Jew nor Gentile. We're all one. But the point is, we have a family relationship. And so John writes with family metaphors. John will write to the entire congregation. This passage in chapter 2 is one where he uses the family metaphors over and over. And this is one where my brain would love it to mean something I don't think it means. You ever fight that? Where you're looking at a scripture and you know, that's not what it means. But boy, I wish it did. Oh, it would be so cool. Can I wedge it into that shoe somehow? Now, this doesn't mean what, what I'd like it to mean, but it's still pretty cool. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his namesake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who's from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men. Each of these are different family terms, because you've overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the fathers, the father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who was from the beginning. Young men, because you're strong and the word of God abides in you and you've overcome the evil one. And I'd love for those different words to mean something different where we can chart through them and, okay, this is different levels of spiritual maturity or this is different places within the church. I think it, and I talk about the different views and, and you can read it in your paper, you can go research it. But when all is said and done, the only thing that makes sense to me about this passage is it's a nice poetic structure to reference the idea that in all phases of our lives, these all apply to us. These apply to the little children in me, but it also applies to the father in me and to the young man in me, as it would to all of you. We are all have our sins forgiven for his name's sake. We all know him. If we are forgiven, we know the Lord. The one who is from the beginning. We've overcome the evil one. Because we share in not just the day of atonement, but the Passover. That is Jesus. So we know him who's from the beginning. We're strong and the word of God abides in us. And we've overcome the evil one. All of that part of family. So with that, let's go to our points for home. First of all, I need... I'll tell you something I need. I need 1 John 2.12. I'm writing to you little children because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. 
namesake. We got to be real careful with that. That doesn't mean because there's a magic in saying the name Jesus. We got to be real careful. I'd love to think that there's magic in it. So that if I just say the name Jesus, it's a magic thing. No. The magic, if you will, and I'm not too fond of that word, because it's not magic, it's real. And it's flesh and blood and it's real power. The power in the name of Jesus is in the Greek and Hebrew sense of the word name. Your name was not simply some label. Your name stood for who you are and what you'd done. It was a statement of your character as exhibited by the life you led. When we are forgiven for his name's sake, it's not because his name is Jesus and oh my, if his parents had instead named him Fred, we'd all be going to hell. No, it's because... It's because of who he is and what he did. Our sins are forgiven because Jesus Christ defeated death and sin on the cross of Calvary. And he took my sins when he did it. And I need that because without it, I got nothing. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. We know the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who dwells in unapproachable light, who has always been and is today and always will be. We are in a relationship that the evil one does not want us to know or understand. He wants us to think we're paupers when we're children of the king. He wants us to think that we're still under his power. When we walk in light and have been set free from darkness. He wants us to think we got no control over our lives. We're just bound up too deeply with him. When God is breaking those chains and bringing us day by day, transforming us into the image of his son. Praise the Lord. I just want it to happen faster. Which brings me to my last one point. Praise God. You've overcome the evil one. Not because of what you've done. Don't get proud. Then the evil one just got you. In humility, we've overcome the evil one through Jesus Christ, whom we know by what he's done. So can I bless you in the name of Jesus? Lord, in Jesus' name, I pronounce your blessing, Father, on all who believe, on all who rest and trust in the saving work that is the name of Jesus. Thank you, Lord, and set free all of your children that are listening today. Give them a measure of of, of, a, a taste of the freedom they truly have in Jesus from fear, from sin, from anxiety, from worry, from all of the different angles that the enemy does to try and bind us down and keep us from walking in your joy.
Give us the peace and the love and the joy and the goodness and the kindness, the gentleness, the faithfulness, the self-control. Those fruits, Father, that you grow in us, grow them in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. 